Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You don't know how strong you are until something happens to you, and you don't know how you'll cope. And for me, it was. I don't need breasts to be a woman. And my husband fancies me for who I am, my personality. I was never gonna look like I did when I was 30, when I was 80, if I get there. You know, people change, their their body shape changes. We don't all look glamorous as we do on a wedding day. And realizing that it's who you are as a person that makes the world love you. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) On this week of The Pleasure Podcast, we speak to consultant, breast cancer surgeon, author, TEDx speaker, triathlete and nominee for Woman of the Year 2016, Liz O'Reardon. Liz was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer in 2015 and had a recurrence in 2018. She went viral when she dressed as Elastigirl from The Incredibles for the last day of her radiotherapy. Liz uses her unique perspective of being both surgeon and patient to write her award-winning blog about living with breast cancer and more recently a book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. She writes to empower cancer patients, separating fact from fiction. We speak to Liz on sex and intimacy after being diagnosed with breast cancer and what happened to her sense of femininity when the treatment removed a breast and plunged her into sudden early menopause. So I was a consultant breast surgeon and at the age of 40, I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself and I had nine months of chemotherapy, surgery and radiotherapy. And it came back locally last year, and now you're all clear. And I realized, despite being an expert in breast cancer, I had no idea what it was like to be a patient. And I also realized that the hardest part for most patients is when the doctors say goodbye, see you in a year, and you're left to go back to your life. And it's not all about pretty breasts and nice scars and cancer not coming back. It's how you go back to work and how you deal with relationships and how you have sex. And I thought everybody else was telling patients about this, but nobody is. And patients are too scared to talk and ask, can I have sex again? How do I deal with the menopause? What do I do with my husband? And I started blogging and writing, and that's led to me talking about helping women in intimacy all over the world. And I get letters from women saying, we cried when we read what you wrote because we know we're not alone. And thank you for speaking out and helping. And it's just lovely being able to do that. What was it like being um, a doctor suddenly becoming a patient? Um, I think I I heard you talk about when you first saw the scan and you were able to diagnose yourself before anyone else was. I think most patients are drip-fed bad news. You have a symptom, you go to the doctor, they do a test. You wait for the result, you find out what it is. You then get the results of an operation and find out what you need. Because I'm an expert in breast cancer, when I saw my scan, I knew... I knew I'd need chemo, I knew I'd need a mastectomy, I had a good idea what my 10-year survivor would be. And suddenly, I can't just be a patient. When I was telling my mum, I said, in three days I'll be telling you I have breast cancer. Don't be silly, you'll be fine. No, I know I will. And I was talking about myself like a patient, and all the real emotion that I would have felt as a normal person was kind of hidden deep down, because I was still in denial, and I think part of me still is. But it was really hard for my surgeon to treat me because she was a friend and a mentor and she trained me. She worked in the same hospital with my husband and she said, I can only treat you if we're not friends anymore because I can't let that emotion. And it's really hard treating colleagues because I guess it just means too much. You have to distance yourself. And doctors are very bad patients. (laughs) I knew chemo is meant to make you feel awful, but you don't know how bad it's meant to make you feel. 
and I was sat at home struggling with 10 days of constipation, crying on the toilet naked, my pride and dignity gone, self-medicating with drugs and medicines I'd had for a while. And you think, I can't ring because I'm a doctor. I meant to know what to do. Mm. I said, don't be so stupid. You should have called us. And there's an often, we're not taught as junior doctors and nurses how to look after colleagues. And often you, they're either ignored because it's scary to go and say, I can't treat her because she's a consultant. It's scary. Or they assume you know what it's like to have an operation, but I've never had an operation before. Or if someone sees you in a waiting room in a clinic, do they come up and say, hi, how are you? Because you know them. But actually, if they do that, they've almost breached your patient confidentiality. There's a whole learning issue of how you help colleagues look after colleagues who are patients. But it, it was hard. I knew too much. And every time I got bad news, I knew what that meant. I knew, so when my cancer came back, I knew my risk of being alive in 10 years is now much less than it was before. So you're dealing with that burden of knowledge, but my husband doesn't know it, and my friends and family don't know it, and how much do you tell them? And when they ask you questions, I'd like to say, well, you could go to breast cancer care and look that up yourself, but because I have that knowledge, I'm suddenly being the doctor in the family. It's hard if you're a healthcare professional looking after someone who's ill and you know too much. And how can you just be their partner, their loved one, and forget what you know outside of it? I was looking after a friend of mine who was dying from liver cancer. And um, I was sort of living with his partner for the final few weeks. Uh And there was some real frustration that I had, particularly around their interpretation of results and the information they were giving me. And part of me wanted to go, well, just let me look at it and let me go through it. And then there was the other part of me going, actually, I mean, this is not appropriate. You're too close. Yeah. You are emotionally embedded in, in this. They've looked after me for 15, 20 years in Brighton. I count them as, as, as incredible friends. Um, and when it became to palliative care, and he was actively dying. Yeah. Uh, and knowing that it would take two hours for the care team in the community to get his medication changed. And it was all in the house. They had a just in case box set up there. Yeah. I could have drawn up you know, an appropriate amount of morphine and he could have had it just the same as they would have given, not an extra amount, not being in a doctorship or anything, but actually recognising that that was not my place no. to take part in. I couldn't be a doctor there. I had to be a layperson or at least I had to be his friend. friend. Yeah, friend, I had to be his friend and watch him in pain for two hours. It's hard to sit on your hands Excuse and do nothing. But I keep thinking about your situation if you're looking after everyone around you, who's looking after you? And how do you allow other people to look after you? I'm not very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. I find it really hard to let people in and say, I need help. I'm fine. I can shower by myself, sat on the floor with no energy to get up. No, I'm not going to call anyone. I'm fine. I learned it the hard way to actually ask for help and say, I'm, I'm struggling. My husband found me really frustrating. It's like, just let me look after you. Stop saying sorry, please. Just be a patient and shut up. So you had been a breast surgeon. Yes. So you had been doing mastectomies for people, for instance. Yeah. And then you were diagnosed. Yeah. And then you were immediately put on a course of chemotherapy. Yeah. So... We give chemotherapy now to some women before surgery, and that's either those with aggressive types of breast cancer or women with a lot of lymph nodes who are going to need it anyway. We also give it to some women to try and shrink the tumour down so they don't need a mastectomy. That's always how I picture chemotherapy, that it's for that purpose, for shrinking. Part of it's that shrinking, and it works in about a third of women. But also, if you're going to need it anyway, I'd rather get the life-saving treatment in first and then the local removing the cancer after, because we can. And that was a shock, because although I've spent weeks, years telling women roughly what chemo is like, when you have a long list of side effects read out to you and you have to sign saying this and this and this and actually it might kill you, it's really scary because it's real. There were some amazing people through Twitter who reached out and told me how to cope, because doctors tell you what will happen, but we don't tell you how to cope with the symptoms. And I asked one of them, I said, well, when will my hair fall out? I couldn't cold cap because I get migraines. And she said, well, you're pubic cold hair full. So a lot of women these days don't need to lose their hair during chemotherapy. We put a tight rubber cap on your head and ice cold water is filtered through the cap. So you've got almost below freezing water running over your scalp. Oh. What that does is reduce the blood supply to your scalp. So the hair is less likely to be affected by chemo. And a lot of women can keep at least 50% of the hair. I wasn't bothered about my hair. I was kind of excited to see what I look like bald. It's weird. But I said, when does the hair fall out? And she said, well, your pubes will fall out on day 13. And I went, what? Because I knew you lost the hair in your head. I didn't realise it is all your body hair. 
Your entire body. Everything. And she's right. I was on the toilet and it's like, oh, next day, handfuls of hair start coming out. I think something I've learned. Free Brazilian leg wax on the NHS. <laughs> I swear you wake up one morning, you think, where is all my leg hair gone? <laughs> There's no pile in the bed. Where's it gone? Many you've lost your hair. So your eyebrows and eyelashes are the last to go. And I found that really hard. As a glasses wearer, mascara is a thing that kind of defines your face. And when you lose that, and I couldn't draw my eyebrows on because there's no frame of reference. Oh. I found that really hard to look in the mirror with no facial hair. You kind of lose all your features that define you as feminine or masculine. That was really, really hard. And how did you get through that? I had huge black glasses that covered my eyebrows, which are fantastic because I didn't need to bother. And I tried drawing on eyeliner, but I couldn't do that the best of times before chemotherapy. So I just didn't bother and accepted this is who I am. Yeah. And I was out and proud with my bald head, not really bothering. And I had Turkish shaves in men's barber shops. Oh my God, you guys get spoiled. Seriously. Have you never had one? No, I just have oh, it like, a, like a Gillette thing. No, the, the, the steel blade and the hot towels and the cold towels in the bomb. It was so amazing. So they were shaving your head. I went and had, because you get little bits of stubble. So my husband came with me and I had a Turkish shave in a men's barber shop. Oh my goodness, it's such a treat. <laughs> but I look at pictures of me now and I don't recognize myself. It's really hard to see that was me. And what, what other physical changes were happening? So chemo basically attacks every cell in the body that's growing. But because cancer cells grow more quickly, they die more quickly. And you get a break for the body to recover before you're hit again. So your nails can get very brittle. They change in color. They can fall out. You can get numbness in your fingertips and your feet, so it's hard to walk. And I couldn't pick up a cup of tea because I couldn't feel my fingers. And you can't undo buttons or open cans because your nails are really sore. Your nose bleeds and it cracks and it runs all the time because there's no nose hair to catch the snot. Your lips crack and get very, very dry and you can get bleeding gums and a sore tongue and ulcers and you lose your sense of taste. And then it affects the lining of your gut. So you get really bad indigestion and heartburn, really bad sickness, constipation or diarrhea, bleeding from the bottom with painful piles. And this is essentially because chemotherapy is killing your natural cells. It's the whole body, well. yeah. yeah. So these are drugs that stop cells dividing and growing. Yeah. And how long is this treatment usually for? So for breast cancer, I had five months of treatment. And it was three different rounds of three different drugs given three weeks apart. So I would have it on the Friday, Saturday would be okay, I'd have four or five days of hell, and then two good weeks where you almost feel normal again. And then you're given the next round. And that was five months of treatment. And the treatment, could you describe what that looks like? They've got great comfy reclining chairs, and there's room for someone to come and sit with you. And for me, the chemo infusion was over in a couple of hours. You're hooked up to the drips, to the drugs go in, and then you're sent home with a huge bag of drugs to help with the side effects. And then you go home and you wait. Yeah. And it was that nervous anticipation of how bad is it going to be? And it started with a change of smell in my nose. And then you just start feeling tired and sick. And I describe it like drinking a bottle of gin a night every night for five nights with the worst hangover of your life. And then, so you went back for your tests. Yes. Five months later. Yes. I had chemotherapy. I had a large cancer. It was about five and a half centimetres. And although it had disappeared, I still wanted an mastectomy. And that's simply because I have small boobs. And we can take away about a fifth of a breast and reshape it. But any more than that, you're not going to get a great result. Okay. So I had a mastectomy. If someone comes to me and needs a mastectomy, we talk about reconstruction. Yeah. Would you like to go flat? Or would you like me to reshape your breast, either using an implant or your own tummy, legs, button, back, wherever you have fat? And patients normally only get two or three weeks to make that decision because we have to treat them within a month. And had you yourself as a breast surgeon done reconstructive surgery? Yeah, oh. so I do implant reconstructions and I, I do the mastectomies in women who are having the tummy or the thigh or the back to make breasts. So for me, it was a fairly routine, here's a 100-page leaflet, here are the pros and cons, let me know what you want. Yes. And I had five months to think about it. Yeah. And I realised you can't think rationally about your breasts when they have cancer because they've got cancer. And you never think what they mean to you. Do, do your breasts define your sexuality, your body image, you as a person? Can you imagine life without them? How will that affect you and your relationship if you're single, if you're not? I had no idea just how complicated that decision could be. I don't know why it's being really emotional. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, I don't know why. But you, yeah. you don't think about it. And for me, I felt guilty that my main reason of wanting a reconstruction was vanity. 
Because I have quite small breasts, if I went flat, then you're given silicone prostheses, fake breasts to put in your bra. But you need to wear a full cut bra to keep them flat on your chest. And if you're small chested, a full cut bra is actually pretty visible. It comes right high up into the cleavage neckline. Yeah. And I like wearing low cut clothes. And I thought, I don't want to change my wardrobe. Yeah. I also felt I should have a reconstruction because I was a surgeon who did breast reconstruction. And if I don't want it, what would my patients think? Oh, Which wow. is ridiculous. Like walking branding somehow. It was crazy. <laughs> and also because I'm slim, I don't have enough body fat to make a breast. So it was an implant or nothing. So I had the implant. And I didn't realize, stupid, the skin is numb. You're not making a breast, you're making a mound of tissue so you don't have to put something in your bra. So though I had a breast shape, there's no sensation. In that skin? No, because the nerves come through the breast tissue to the skin. So when you take the breast away, the skin is numb. It has no feeling. It's no longer an, an erotic. You don't get erotic sensation from it. But they're freezing cold in the winter. Because your breasts are full of blood, when the blood's gone and you come in for have a shower on a cold day, the implant is cold and you're like, oh, this is really freezing on my chest. No idea. Yeah. And was this a conversation? I mean, I, I mean, I would, I think, think like, it's my decision. Who gives a fuck what my husband thinks? Yes. No, it's my Yeah, breath. yeah, yeah. But was it a conversation? It was. So I... I've had patients come to me and you're very aware that their husbands can't imagine their woman without a breast or women are doing things because of what they think they should do, what society thinks they should do. And as a surgeon, I was always, this is your decision. And if your mum or your twin and your husband says X, but you want Y, then I do this for Y because you have to live with it. And I also used to say what you think now is not what you may think a year down the line, but you're not there yet. So just go with what's right now and we'll deal with it. Radiotherapy changed my implant. It made it very hard and I had a lot of chronic pain, which again, I used to warn patients about, but until you've had it, you've got no idea how debilitating it can be. Now, radiotherapy is very different from chemotherapy. Yes, so radiotherapy is an x-ray treatment and what that does is mop up any cells left behind. I'd got a bit of scar tissue at the side of my breast and we did an ultrasound and that showed a recurrence. So I had to go flat because my cancer had come back there. But I remember walking around the, my local shopping centre, trying to find clothes that would hide the fact that I was flat chested or disguise high neck tops if I was going to wear a false bra, just thinking there is nothing. What am I going to wear? In tears. Mm. And because there's not much of me, it's hard finding post-operative bras when you're very small back sized. And Debenhams had one. The only shop, M&S did, Debenhams had one. Thank and I you, picked Debenhams. it up and thought, this is it. Mm. And I bought it and I went home. And it was just that you can't imagine waking up and seeing yourself flat. And is this both breasts at this Just point? the one. Like an Amazonian warrior. Yes. <laughs> they always had one, didn't they? I know, so they could do the archery. But it's just that I couldn't imagine it. I was just grieving. And I then couldn't wear a bra because I still had pain and the bra was just too tight. So I had to go one-sided. And there are some great websites, I think Loose Deborah and Flatter Fashion, who go through what's in trend and say, these tops have got ruffles and this may hide it. But actually now I don't care. I don't care if people are looking at me. And it's not that obvious because, again, I don't have much on the other side. But I'm suddenly, it's fine. This is me. I just have one breast. Everyone's worrying about what everyone thinks. There's time when I look in the mirror. Well, I don't look in the mirror. I don't look at the scars. I think they're ugly, they're horrible. I just dissociate from that. And when I'm on holiday and people are wearing bikinis or someone's in a beautiful evening dress, then I just think, I hate this because I've lost. It's like losing another part of your femininity. But now I never thought I'd be OK walking around lopsided compared to me a year ago before going into the surgery, thinking, how on earth am I going to cope? I was trying to sort of imagine how it might feel when you want to look after yourself, love yourself, nurture yourself whilst knowing that there's sort of this, this foreign body attacking yeah. you. And I, I had a little look at Susan Sontag's book, yes, The Metaphor of Illness. Yes, yeah. Because people always say, you know, you're battling cancer, you're a survivor. Mm. And that, that's not helpful, actually. No. I, the battle terminology I hate. And again, I, this passed me by before I got cancer. I was completely oblivious until you're in that world. And I think if you're in a war, you choose to go to battle, you choose to sign up, you choose to go and fight, knowing you might not win. You don't choose to have cancer, it happens to you. And when people die of cancer, it's because medical science failed them. 
we ran out of drugs to help. It's not because you didn't fight hard enough. And I think they lost their battle implies they failed. And people fight every day to cope with what cancer is doing to them. They are not sitting at home losing. But is that all they lost their battle? It's really sad, you know, and I'm a survivor, I'm surviving. Well, everybody's surviving to live. But you don't fight cancer, you fight the drugs, you fight what it does to you. Does that make sense? And every time someone writes an article, I'm saying no battle terminology. I'm not a fighter, I'm not a survivor. You don't lose your battle. It's like people say when they commit suicide. Mm. I'd love another name for that because it sounds like you're committing a crime. These are desperate people who couldn't see a way out. But we're trying to say, stop it. And there was an article, I think, in The Telegraph or The Guardian recently about the cancer terminology and the war metaphors and just trying to get people think again. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want someone to say, I lost my battle. Yeah. And also, I suppose, hooking that back into the sense of these two factions happening in your body at the same time, that maybe that kind of battle terminology might serve to underline the sense that your body's fighting itself. Yeah. And I don't know how, I don't know what you think, how helpful that is or not. I wonder if it makes one disassociate more with the part of you that has the cancer. I didn't really think about it that much. And I think for most breast cancer patients, it only comes back in a third of people. And once they've had the operation, they don't have cancer anymore. And it's how you move on from, I had it, it was treated, it might come back, but I'm just Liz. I'm not Liz, the breast cancer patient. I'm not fighting anything. I'm just living my life. But some people love the fighting analogy and some people like to have that status as a cancer patient because it gives them, I guess, strength. Yeah. And it's everybody deals with it differently. When I see patients who've got cancer and they have this, you know, I, I'm, I'm fighting, I, I, you know, I want to be, I want to fight for my kids and I want to yeah. do all of these things. Part of me is that they're thinking, going, but it's your body. And I think what many people do is they other this cancer because yeah. it's something you have to oppose, you have to get rid of, it's dangerous to you. But also part of me is thinking, well, you're talking about cutting off a bit of yourself and actually maybe that's why you have to other it because how otherwise, because it's a violence against yourself. You know, you're going to take poison for five months to harm yourself and you're going to go back every three weeks, which to me seems incredible. And that to me is such a huge violence against, you know, my psychological framework of who I am, what my body exists as, where it ends, where someone else starts, that actually if I am then to cut off a part of it, I can't see it as me because that would be too extreme. So whilst this was going on, were you able to find moments of pleasure, joy, um, whether that be you know massages or intimate times with your husband or whatever it might be, was it, is it possible to have that sort of enjoyment whilst your body is going through something so extreme? Yes, definitely. And it is the little things that matter. So chemotherapy for a lot of people is four or five days of feeling really rough than two normal weeks. And you're told to plan nice things for those weeks. So meeting friends for coffee and massages, but that's a whole other issue. Um, most high street salons will not massage people with cancer. Oh. Based on old fashioned teaching that massage makes cancer spread. And insurance purposes, because if you have massage and your cancer comes back, you might sue them. There are now quite a few companies who are treating people with cancer for massages. They've had special training. Nuffield Health is one of them where as long as you can get undressed and get on the couch, we'll do whatever you like. We'll look after you because we know it helps. Intimacy is hard because for young women, well, and any woman actually, chemotherapy puts you into an instant menopause. It switches your ovaries off because they're dividing. And I swear, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I'd wet myself because I could feel water trickling down my bum crease and my inner thigh. What the hell is that? Oh, it's a night sweat and a hot flush. It's instant compared to the normal three or four years that you see your mum go through. And that's because of the medication? The chemotherapy. The chemotherapy stops your ovaries working. And then after breast cancer, if if you haven't had chemotherapy, most women are given a tablet to stop the estrogen levels in their body because most cancers are sensitive to estrogen, so we reduce the levels. So that means that you have menopausal symptoms, some women from the age of 20 onwards. I was 40, but it means that your libido goes. You don't have any female sex hormones. You have no interest in sex. You get vaginal atrophy and dryness. You get the hot flushes, the night sweats, the mood swings, everything instantly overnight. And that was much harder to deal with than almost the chemotherapy, feeling old before your time. So how did you maintain your relationship with your husband? Because that's something that's been incredibly supportive. Yes, I mean... As one hopes you would have been. 
I think you need to talk about the elephant in the room. And it's not just breast cancer, it's any cancer, whether it's colon cancer or you've had your leg amputated or you have a colostomy or testicular cancer. We generally don't talk about sex with our partners in a long-term relationship. And as a doctor, I never talked about it with my patients. I assumed they, the breast care nurses might or the GP might, they might find things online. I didn't realize how difficult it was to have a sex life when you are going through the menopause. And when you've lost the hair in your head, does your husband touch your bald head or do they not? And do they want, it? it's really, really weird. And we discovered too late in the middle of things that we should have talked about this before and now it's awkward. There are no rules. And some women don't want to be touched at all. Others are just desperate for that physical connection. But every woman I've spoken to, and I've thought this myself, has at some point wanted their husband to divorce them and go and find a healthy woman with two breasts and a libido. Because you are, I was so guilty of the potential damage that my breast cancer was having in our relationship because of how I felt about myself. I don't feel sexy. I don't get turned on when you're watching Fleabag. I don't get that reaction anymore. I'd rather have a cup of tea. And I've lost my breast. I can't put on a you know, little sexy something for the evening. I don't think of myself as a sexual being. When I look in the mirror, I don't fancy myself. You I know what I mean? I stop laughing though about the, the but Fleabag. But I love step. Fleabag. And it's like all these women going, the seat's wet, thinking. But you don't get that reaction. And I watch a film and, you know, you see two people suddenly going at it in a hotel corridor and you think, I never, ever, ever want to do that again. And is that directly to do with the menopause? Yes, it's the lack of oestrogen. Hmm. So how does one start to coax a libido back? So I, I turn to Twitter. Amazing people like at Sam Talk Sex and Joe Devine and just putting feelers out there. And I kind of created a, a bag of tricks that's in the book I wrote to help women come to terms with sex. And it's realizing it may never be spontaneous. And your partner is probably never going to start things because they're so scared of either hurting you or doing the wrong thing or it's the wrong time. And part of being in a loving relationship is someone starting things going. But when you know it's always you and you never want to, it's really hard. But because you don't have the estrogen as a natural lubricant, your vagina can get very tight and very dry and very painful. And a lot of women have said, I've cried during sex because it's so sore. And they say, I don't know what to do. Do you carry on? Do you stop? You know, they know their partner needs it, but they don't know what to do. So that led me to an amazing company called Yes, who make organic lubricants. We've talked about them briefly in a previous They're fantastic. Yeah. There's no chemicals, there's no parabens. They do oil and water-based vaginal and anal. And you have a bag of tricks. You can get tiny little vibrators and amazing packs of dilators that start at your little finger size and go up to a full erection size. So I recommend women go upstairs and relax themselves, almost masturbate. So when, when you masturbate, the vagina relaxes enough to stretch to put the dilator in. And what does a dilator look like? They look a bit like a banana really, but they, they start very small and thin like the size of your little finger and they have a big ring on the end so they can't get lost inside. And with lubricant, you just gently put them inside and stretch. You can do it in the shower every morning if you like. This is what people use for vaginismus as well. Exactly, the vaginismus, the vaginal atrophy. Exactly. They used just... to use more things like the Amiel dilators, which are more plasticky. Yeah. Um, but they've, they've developed more sort of soft... Yeah, um, they're soft silicone. silicone. Yeah. They're really easy to use and keep clean. And a woman then knows if she can get the largest dilator in, she can probably get her husband inside her. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. But sex may be quite mechanical for the woman having it because they don't get those feelings. What about clitoral stimulation? So that still works. That, okay. So clitoral stimulation still works. Um, but a lot of times if women try to have a clitoral orgasm with their partner to relax themselves enough to have sex, the pressure of their partner having to make them come is too much so they don't. Yeah. But it, it's, you need that way of connecting. Yeah. But it's accepting it may be different and that may happen to you when you're 25 and you've lost those years of sex with a loving partner. It makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable, some of this conversation, in the sense that sort of phrases like um, the man might need it or uh, if you're not having penetrative sex, it's not sex. And we've yeah. been on a real education this about past podcast and, yeah. about you know the fact that actually the, you know, the clitoris being such a big structure that extends oh, almost, su almost superficially and then the vagina is the tube that you plunge in and out of. Yeah. But it just seems that is there not a possibility of instead of focusing on penetration 
of actually going, well, actually, our sexual lives are different now. Yes. They're not bad. They're not no. worse. They are just different. And so I need to relearn your body landscape. Yeah. And we have, will have sex in a different way, whether that's between the thighs or whether it is vaginally, if, if that's something you like yeah. or you can enjoy, or whether actually it isn't vaginally anymore. Because lots of gay men, particularly longer-term relationships, don't have anal sex at no. all. Because penetration isn't the biggest be all no. and end all. And it's interesting that in the heterosexual world, that penetration is this complete fascination. And you're thinking... Well, actually, there's loads of stuff you can do that yeah. doesn't require this amount of preparation and dilation and lubrication and all this. For God's sake, use a hand or a mouth. No, I know. So I think I'm... I'm Sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. I'm coming at it from women who are feeding back what their husbands have told them. Mm. I think as a woman, well, any woman, let alone breast cancer and menopause, there's so much more to do. Actually, penetrative sex is rarely the bang for your buck. It's the clitoral stimulation. There are all sorts of other things you can do, and that is really, really important. But I think some men will be very happy just to have that, but some other men may feel, actually, for me, I need the penetration. Mm. So if that's something you need to do to make your partner feel closer to you, but then as the bonus, they then spend the time giving you the clitoral stimulation, the hand, the mouth, and it's working. There are different ways of doing it. But if that is the thing that you think you need to keep your relationship glued, there are ways to get there. But I think, especially during chemotherapy, the whole outer course massage, this, doing everything else but can just really make you feel connected. Yeah. I was thinking about uh, women who aren't in long-term relationships yeah. and how tricky that must be if you want to have, I know you've got your bag of tricks, but I mean how. You're on a date, when do you say, I'm wearing a wig? Yeah. And I only have one breast and I've got the menopause yeah. and I can't have children. And there are a couple of women who have written books, and I, I can't remember the names of them, about what it's like to be single and dating and having breast cancer. And I have no idea how I'd have coped. I think I'd have been quite happy never dating again because my libido had been turned off. But a lot of young women actually get quite horny during chemotherapy oh, and really? actually want to go out and date and have their life I again. I wonder sort of chemically why that... I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But it's... I think it's trial and error. And there are a lot of forums, especially on breast cancer care, where there are younger women talking about dating and what do you say and what do you do? And it's the perils of dating anybody. You have to say it at some point and only you know what's right or wrong and you have to hope that the guy or girl you're talking to actually gets it. Has it changed the way you practice? Are you retired now? So I had to retire when my cancer came back because the side effects of treatment meant I couldn't move my arm properly. Yeah. And also psychologically, it was very hard for me to deal with it. It did change how I went back. It changed how I talked to people. Until you've been on the other side and you've sat in that waiting room, squeezing your husband's hand, looking at the floor, and you've got bad news and you know what it's like to hear those words in person. You can't imagine what you're doing to people. All I wanted to do was when someone needed chemotherapy was to say, it's okay, I've been there. I want to give you a hug. I can tell you how to cope. Or say, yes, this is fucking shit. I get there. I can help. Say, oh, no, you can't say it's bad. But I couldn't do that, not only because I have to be potentially the bad guy, but actually they need to go through, I hate the journey word, but they need to go through treatment themselves. Anything happens to someone, your aunt will say, oh, my mum had that and she died or this. I don't care. I don't care. I need to go through this myself. And it was hard because I'm connecting with potential people I can talk to about my own experiences as a patient, but I had to be a doctor. However, when I saw women um, a year down the line, and often the younger women who are struggling with the side effects of the menopause, I knew what to ask. It's just a gut feeling to say, actually, I've had this myself. Have you tried this? And I would start saying, I'm going to ask about your sex life because I bet no one is. And I don't care if this is embarrassing. You can talk to me and I can give you things that will help or you can ask your GP. Yeah. Because someone, we don't talk about it with our partners, let alone your nurse or your doctor or your GP. It's just, you know, we'll, we'll muddle along. I thought if I can just start helping a couple of people get their lives back. And would that be your sort of advice really to other practitioners to yes. start speaking more openly to their patients about this? So I, I had a friend on Twitter who had a colostomy and she asked her surgeon what she could use on a one night stand. And he was, and I wonder whether if you can't imagine having a colostomy wanting sex yourself, how would you ever think about talking to your patients about wanting sex? You've never put yourself in their position. And for me, we always judge good care by um, whether it's clinically effective, we're doing the right things, is it safe? So for me as a surgeon, it was, yes, the scars look pretty and they're still alive in five years. Good job, well done me. But it's the patient experience and it's how they get their life. And life is not just having a numb breast. It's about work and sex and money and relationships. 
and someone needs to help them fill that gap. Yeah. And it might not be my job as a doctor, but the nurses, the GPs, there must be a way we can do to give people that information. It's sort of aftercare, which yeah. allows them to have a quality of life, not just life. There's no point me doing an amazing reconstruction if they'll never let their husband see them naked and they have anxiety and depression. Yes. And can't talk to anyone about it and don't realise that it's normal to feel like that. And now we're having our psychosexual services, which are often available to support mm. um, men and women. However, the services that were based within public health are being cut because they're in the council budget now. And so because they're disappearing, waiting lists are getting longer and charities are having to fill the gap. And you've got places like uh, you know, the Albany Trust, you've got you know, Macmillan, Harry Curie, all of these people that are working incredibly hard. But it frustrates me that a charity has to fill the gap. I know. And it's not just the patients that need counselling, often it's their partners. What do I do? What do I touch? Who do I say? Where can I talk to? Is it normal to feel like this? They're almost left out and they're just as important. Which is why I imagine this sort of community that you have very much joined and helped mm. build online, yeah. like doctors who have had cancer, yeah. for example, has been so essential and important to your recovery and, yeah. and others. I think no one can get what it's like to be inside your head when you've had cancer. And friends and family want to help and they love you, but they don't understand the fear of recurrence and waking up every day thinking, is this a cough or a cough? And how long do you wait before you tell someone? Because as a doctor, you often know too much. And dealing with it, this is going to sound crazy, but a friend of mine who's now sadly died said, I was glad the day my cancer came back because I could stop waiting for it to happen. Now, I would never want my cancer to come back. And I know many people with metastatic cancer, and it's horrific, but I get the fear of waiting. And having like-minded people to talk and say, is it normal? It's having that common bond and getting tips and tricks from everybody and have you tried this or have you done that? Because you don't get that from your doctors because they don't know. But why would they? Because they've never been in your position. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But there's a particular bit of the book where you talk about the fact if you give a woman chemotherapy, mm -hmm. that you increase their reproductive age by 10 years. So that you were 38 when you were diagnosed. I was 40. 40 when you were diagnosed. Yeah. And then you were given a very small amount of time to decide whether you wanted your yeah. fertility or not. What was that like? Horrific. I hadn't thought to think about my fertility in the couple of weeks between being diagnosed and having chemo because your brain is thinking about so many other things. And when you get closer to the menopause, your ovaries start to slow down and chemotherapy will switch them off and it's very unlikely they will recover. In your 20s and 30s, they probably will recover and we can give drugs and injections to try and protect your ovaries and switch them off. And there's also the chance of having your eggs fertilized or your embryos saved so you can potentially have children at a later date. It's harder if you're single because if you freeze an embryo, the success rate is much greater than an egg that isn't fertilized. So it's easier if you're in a relationship. Oh, I hadn't realized that. A right. fertilized embryo has a much greater success rate of becoming a baby than just an egg from your ovary. I didn't know that. But if you've only been with your partner for three months when you're diagnosed, is he the man you want to have children with in the future? That's a whole other ethical or are minefield. Are you going to get donor sperm to make some embryos because yes. you know that would potentially yeah. will likely give you a baby? And you've got weeks to make this decision. So for me, they said, because your cancer is large, we want to crack on with the chemo, and we're worried if we were to give you a course of IVF to stimulate your ovaries, it might make the cancer grow. Because IVF is giving you female sex hormones. Now, when we do that, we give women drugs to stop it affecting the cancer, but they basically said, we don't think it's right to try it. 
had you considered wanting children in the past? So my husband, he had a daughter who was 10 years younger than me, and we'd only been married for a couple of years. He was my boss. Great. I was a registrar. He was my consultant. He asked me out the day I left to work in another hospital. <laughs> and our first year of married life was spent with me working at the Royal Marsden, living in his parents' house, and he was up in Suffolk, and I was commuting back and forth because I had a fellowship job. So we'd only been together for a couple of years. And we were probably never going to have children, but I wanted a couple of years of us just being together as a couple before we did. But it was always there in the background. And then suddenly it was, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to get sick, you'll get bleeding ulcers, you can't have kids, you'll move on to constipation. And I, I didn't think to say, can we just have a couple of minutes to go outside and agree we're never going to have children? So this happened in the consultation? In the consultation room. So they, they go through all the complications of chemotherapy and one was fertility. And they said, well, because the cancer's big, we don't think IVF is appropriate, so we won't bother you'll become infertile, we'll move on to the next. And because we were both consultants being treated in hospital by a consultant we knew who my husband works with, it just, we, we didn't think. So it's yes, yes, sign away. And then in the car, I just suddenly started grieving for a child I didn't know I wanted. Yeah. And we probably would have never had them. But when that decision is taken away from you, and it's kind of thinking, because of breast cancer, I've lost my hair, I've lost my breast, I've lost my fertility. I've lost my sex hormones. How are you still a woman? And it really makes you define who you are and what makes you who you are. It when does. all the trappings of femininity are taken from you. Yeah. And if a man wanted to become a woman, you would give them hair and breasts and sex hormones. Do you feel very different to the person, say, who was 35? Completely. But that's more psychologically. I have found an inner strength that I never knew I had. I don't know where it's come from. The fact that I'm now talking all over the world and writing and speaking, I just think it's bonkers. I have no idea of the impact I've had because as far as I'm concerned, I just started writing about having cancer. That's all I've done. And this is on your blog. That's on the blog that started and that led to a TEDx talk. It's like a spider's web, but it led to me writing the book with um, Professor Trisha Greenhouse. And that mm -hmm. came about, I had a secret tribe on Twitter of doctors with cancer. Trish didn't tell her sons and family at the time she worked through chemo. But we were both awake at three o'clock in the morning on a steroid high. We both had chemo on the same day. We were both struggling with constipation, saying, have you tried prunes? Have you tried this? We were able to share what it was like being a doctor, a consultant with cancer. And we realized on forums that patients ask terrifying questions. You take nothing in when a doctor tells you you have cancer. They're giving you all this information. And I was just up here going, la, 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 la. I want to run out and scream. And patients were asking, is it safe to have sex during chemo because I'm scared I'm going to toxify my husband? Ugh. Is radiotherapy radioactive? Can I do this? And you don't take anything in. So we thought if we can make a friendly book that explains everything and diet and exercise and sex and relationships, so it's all there, you don't need to scour the internet like we did, we might help one other person. Trisha Greenhouse talks, writes about how she turned to Google. Yes, the moment that first she got the thing diagnosis. you do. And you'd think that's an absolute number one no-no. The first thing you do is go to Google. Yes. You don't go to the hospital website. Mm. You don't go to NHS websites. Mm. You go to Google and there's scary stuff out there. And yeah. we both did it. Three o'clock in the morning looking at metastatic cancer blogs planning your funeral. That's you're, a dark place to you, go. And you kind of have to go there to bounce back. And I still go there every couple of months when a friend gets diagnosed or I have a symptom. For me... I feel reassured when I know how bad it might possibly get, whereas other people won't go there because they don't want to know. But Google is your source of information, whereas I'd love doctors to digitally signpost patients. You ask patients, what are the apps, the websites, the forums that have helped you with whatever illness, and then you say, you've just been diagnosed with arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, you're 20. Here's a list of useful websites and apps. Tell me any others that I can pass on. Nice. I had no idea there were apps that will tell women when to check their breasts and they can put a reminder in the first day of their period every month and tell them how to do it. I have been taught that actually don't bother to check your breasts because you, they, you might find sort of slight abnormalities, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So don't sort of yeah. frighten yourself. So <laughs> it's changing with um, Helen Addis. She was one of the TV producers on the Lorraine programme has got the change and check. So now in changing rooms all across the UK, there are posters telling you how to do it. You are the only one who knows what your breasts are like. And if you don't check them every month, you don't know what's normal for you. So by doing every month, you get used to this one's a bit lumpier and then you know if there's something different. And I always, I'd say, 
you find a difference, wait a couple of weeks because it may just be that time of the month. And if it's still there after two or three weeks, go and see the GP. Most of what I saw as a breast surgeon was just harmless lumps, bumps. But the only way to prove it isn't cancer is to be seen by a surgeon and get a scan if you need it. But if you don't know what's normal, and most of the time women notice a lump, as they swear it wasn't there two weeks before. And it's a bit like when you're pregnant, you're flat as a pancake and then a bump suddenly appears overnight. And it's the same with cancers. They just suddenly grow until they're big enough to feel. So you won't miss it for months and months and months. If there's a new lump and it's been there two to four weeks, you should get it checked out. But a lot of people, I know since I was diagnosed, they don't want to examine, they don't want to get a scan, they don't want to know because they've seen me go through it and can't imagine going through it themselves. And before you went in for your scan, what signs were there? I had had a cyst on that breast six months before. I I had lumpy breasts, but this felt like an obvious cyst. And cysts feel like a hard, like balloon under pressure, like a hard marble. And I'd had a scan and it was normal. And I noticed another lump come up. I could see it in my cleavage, but I thought, I just had a mammogram, it's another cyst. And I waited a month and I told my mum and she said, well, you just go and get it checked out because I'm worried. And the mammogram was normal. And they did the ultrasound and I was expecting to see a cyst and it was a cancer. And I'm a breast surgeon and I should know what a cancer feels like, but you can't be a doctor and a patient for yourself. What was the best and worst thing that anyone's said to you? Because you get lots of people trying to be supportive and trying to be helpful. No one teaches you at school what to say to someone who's ill or someone who has cancer or someone who's dying. We don't know. And my own father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer after me and I didn't know what to say to him despite having had cancer myself because it's also a generational thing. I would rather people said something than nothing because when you say nothing, you're retreating and it's the one time you need people. And it was actually someone I was at school with, who I hadn't, I hadn't seen her since I was 15. She knitted me a Wonder Woman outfit for a Barbie doll and sent it to me through the post. It is the people who come to you from all areas of your life that you'd never think would be there to support you. And I'd rather you say something and make a mistake than say nothing and almost say, I have no idea what to say or what to do or how to help you because neither of us have been here before, but I'm here. I used to set um, alarms on my phone to remind me to text people. Because it's just contact. And all you want someone to say is, I'm just thinking of you. I don't need to reply because you might be tired, but just know I'm here. Or, hi, I'm just thinking of you. Or send a card through the post. It's lovely getting something that's not a letter. And I'd have alarms, right, Friday, send her a card. And then Tuesday, send her a card. Just that contact to say that you're there. The thing I used to hate was everyone says, you look really well. Because chemo strips your skin, you almost get an acid facial peel, so you're almost glowing, and you look really good. And you may look good, but they don't see the mental anguish. You don't know what I'm dealing with, but you tell me I look great. Because if you tell me I look like shit, you have to stay and pick up the pieces. Because actually, most of us don't have the time to say, how are you really? And I may not want to go into that. But I think saying, I'm here for you when you need me, when you want to talk about the elephant in the room, we'll go there. But actually, I'm going to still talk about Love Island or Strictly or (laughs) I'm a person, I'm interested in the gossip, what's going on? Because when I was diagnosed, we went through our wedding list, basically saying, Liz is having chemo for breast cancer and we made everybody cry and they made us cry. And then everyone says, what can we do to help? I have no idea. I've never had cancer before. I don't know what I need. Now, I'd give them a long list, a bedsheet fairy someone to come and wash and change the bed sheets because you're dripping in sweat, to fill the food with meals so my husband doesn't need to cook. Just, just send me a card, send me a jigsaw. I now know what I need. But at the time, you just make it up as you go along. And talking of food, yeah. you mentioned what just before we started recording. That, yeah, um, Royal but- Marsden Cancer Cookbook. So I didn't realise, I knew you lost your sense of taste in chemo, but you don't realise how horrible it is to live with it. And you get different senses of taste depending on the drugs. So the first drugs I had made everything taste very metallic, like putting a metal coin in your mouth. And I couldn't taste tea. It was horrible and salty things and water tasted disgusting. And then the second round of drugs, everything was chalky, like a really dry, claggy kind of, you can't clear it. And you don't know what to eat. But I swear my husband and I were about to divorce because I needed to eat. I lost a lot of weight and he, he did. What do you want to eat? I don't care. I feel, I feel sick. I don't care. But you need to eat. I don't care what you cook me. Leave me alone. It's that what do you do to help? And then my bridesmaid sent me the Royal Marsden Cancer Cookbook through the post, which is fantastic. It was a marriage saver. It goes through the different tastes you have, 
what to eat when your mouth is sore, when your tongues are bleeding, when you need to lose weight, gain weight. It's, it's fantastic recipes. But there's also an amazing guy called Ryan Riley who's developed the Life Kitchen. Have you heard of him? No. I was lucky enough to go on one of his cooking retreats. His mum had cancer and he has an amazing palate and realised how taste changes when you're having chemo. And he's worked with people to develop recipes that you can eat, often using quite strong tastes like harissa and coriander and chilli so you can taste something. Mm. And this is really clever. If I was to say wasabi or salt and vinegar crisps, does it make your nose kind of tingle? Because you imagine that. By using tastes that stimulate other senses, you think you're tasting. Because 60% of our taste is actually smell, isn't it? Yeah, so your sense of smell changes. But if you stimulate other senses, and he offers free cookery retreats for cancer patients and their loved ones. was, Was food a pleasure for you before? It wasn't until I met my husband. I was a single surgeon who basically lived off cereal and bagels. When I did long <laughs> night shifts, I can't be bothered to cook, whereas my husband would always cook meat and two veg, and he introduced me to foods. And I really enjoyed it. But when your taste comes back, it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I can eat this again. And is that something you and your husband have felt that you've been able to reconnect over again? Yeah. Love of cooking and The cooking. day he could bring me a cup of tea in bed, and I drank it without going, oh, that's horrible. Because he used to do that before, and it's like, yeah, okay, we're back. Are there any sort of tips or um, guidance you might give someone who uh, may have just been diagnosed with cancer? It's scary and it's terrifying and you're going to go through emotional hell and you're going to feel alone. And there are no rules, there is no right or wrong and you may deal with it very differently to your friends and your family, but that's okay. The best thing I can suggest is to try social media and forums to connect with people going through it at the same time so you know you're not alone and ask them how to cope. There is an amazing network out there of people of all ages who are sharing tips and tricks, and it's that that saved my life. I told Twitter the day after I was diagnosed. I used to use Twitter for triathlons and baking, and I thought, I can't go nine months without talking about it. And ever since that day, I've been flooded with support from people just reaching out to share, and I've just formed this amazing network of people who get it. You are never alone. There is always someone out there. You can read Liz's blog at liz.reorden.co.uk and buy her book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control, published by Vermilion from all the usual sources. Liz has shared some of her most useful links and websites and we've popped them in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. pleasure. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 